All right, grab your Bibles or your internet device and First uh, Peter chapter four. We'll be reading uh, seven through eleven this morning. <clears throat> the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, uh, orphans have a hard time figuring out life in a new family. As Christians, um, we have been brought into a new family. And we too sometimes struggle to sort that out. We try to do things like we always have. Uh, so teach us your ways this morning. Teach us uh, more about life in your family uh, through this particular instruction in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps uh, if you watch TV, I don't take that for granted by anyone's part, but if you watch TV, there's a commercial that's been on lately uh, where uh, there's a bar and uh, what you see on TV is the announcement that this great meteor is coming towards the earth and uh, within the next day it's going to be destroyed and everyone runs away in fear trying to, uh, you know, as if they can run and hide, I guess. Or maybe they want to go be close to their loved ones, not sure exactly why they run away. But then there's, of course, the man and the woman who see each other decide to have the whatever beverages that they're uh, advertising in that particular commercial, put some money in the jukebox, and dance together while the end of the world draws near. People do have very different responses to news about the possible end of the world. Some people live in fear even though um, they don't know when it's going to happen. But sometimes there are predictions about when it's going to happen. And uh, one of the beauties, so to speak, of the Internet is that I saw that the latest prediction is later on this month. So mark your calendars, folks. August 21st. That's right, folks. The day of the uh, eclipse is supposed to be... I guess at least a partial rapture. I'm not sure. I don't listen to Perry Stone and I really don't care. Uh, but some people take this seriously and they act on what they believe. So, that ties in with where Paul starts this whole paragraph. Because the end is at hand. Our big idea as we think about this is that we are to wait by loving and serving one another in God's household. 
Okay, we're not to have either of the responses of the commercial that I talked about, nor the responses of so many over the years when predictions have been made. And so we're going to start with that notion of wait by praying because Jesus has this. He's got control of it. It's all all right. But Peter is making a big shift here from the previous paragraph to this paragraph. He talked about putting off worldliness and sin. He says, you have come out of the faithless community and into the community of faith, and therefore you leave behind or you put off the ways of life that you used to have. But now he moves to the positive side of that, similar to what we see in Colossians, where now they're to put on certain things. Uh, They are to live in a certain way, particularly because they are now united to Jesus Christ and they are now part of the community of faith. And the context of this is partially eschatology. That big word that frightens many because they're not sure exactly what it means. That big word that can frighten others because they know some of what it means. It just means the last things, the study of the last things. And we mentioned that word because, as I mentioned here, Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. What are we to take by that? That's a very important question for understanding this text within its proper context. And I think A lot of what Peter is getting at here is the reality that much of the plan of salvation has already come to pass. Jesus has already come in the flesh. The incarnation has happened. Jesus was obedient in the flesh, obeying the full law for His people as mediator. That has happened. Jesus has suffered in the body, just as Peter has been talking about in the context of this letter. That has happened. He has been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. That incredible thing for our salvation already has happened. Jesus has already ascended. He's already seated upon the throne. He's already sent the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. And so there's really only like one main thing that remains. And Peter recognizes this. This is coming to an end at some point. Because Jesus has come and Jesus has promised to come again. And so a part of what is going on as we think about that is the realization that because of Christ's work for us upon the cross, because of His death, His resurrection, and then His ascension, the temple and the sacrifices were now obsolete, as it says in Hebrews. And because they were obsolete, they were soon going to be removed. And so Peter writes this, most likely in the early 60s, less than a decade before the destruction of Jerusalem and also the temple during the Jewish war. And so I can't help but think of this passage in light of that reality that Jesus, uh, Peter knows because he was there during the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and part of that discourse had to do with the destruction of the temple within one generation and he knows that the end of the temple in Jerusalem is coming soon because that generation is almost done. 
And so that is what I think he says. He knows he's living in the last days, as Peter, as Paul also says, but he knows that something big is coming, and that big thing coming is the destruction of Jerusalem. The reality of crisis and persecution can fill us with fear, and people can act very irrationally. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's trying to encourage them to not overreact to what's happening. Let's think historically for a moment. Let's go back to 1844. William Miller, the father of Adventism, had prophesied or promised or declared or however you want to say it. Uh, he's a false prophet, by the way. Uh, but he had said that on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus was going to return. And so a lot of people sold all their property and quit their jobs and sat on a hill waiting for Jesus to take them home. That's not the only time this kind of thing has happened. I think of 1988, September 11th or 10th or 11th, depending on, uh, you know, what I, Edgar said. But Edgar Weisenat, who was a NASA scientist who studied the Bible, and sometimes scientists and Bibles don't mix. Be careful. <laughs> Just a good opportunity to tease you. Um, so he declared, you know, 88 reasons the rapture is going to be in 1988. And so the next year, since it didn't happen, he had 89 reasons why the rapture was going to happen in 1989. And some people acted on that and quit their jobs. We see as well, Harold Camping made his prediction that uh, in May, on the 21st, 2011, that Jesus was going to return. And guess what? Some people quit their jobs, sold their property because they thought it was going to happen. That's not as bad as the Heaven's Gate people who took their lives thinking that the aliens were behind the comet and that they had come to rescue them. So, hey, some cults get really bad. That's not what Peter wants. That's not how he wants us to respond or wanted them to respond and, by extension, us to respond. He says to them, rather, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, he's saying, keep your heads about you. Act thoughtfully. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't be overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, but rather keep your head about you. He says essentially that, or I'm saying, that we can be sober-minded, we can be self-controlled, we can be alert if, and only if, we are trusting Christ to do the good He has promised us despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And that's really what the bottom line gets down to is that Christ can handle this. That whatever may come that is difficult for us is not beyond the scope of His knowledge, not beyond the scope of His ability. But we see even within this this letter that the very end of chapter 3, we see Jesus who is now at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 
we have at the very end of this particular paragraph that we read that to Jesus belong not just glory, but dominion from the ages to the ages. Forever and ever. That's how we typically put it. And so the reality that Jesus rules and reigns should grant us the capacity to not freak out when things are difficult. But what fear or panic does is it often reveals these remaining pockets within us of unbelief. They exist. Your faith is not perfect. There are still things that frighten us. For some of you, it's politics. You're in a frenzy about what's happening in the news with regard to what's going on in Washington, D.C. or up in Phoenix. And some of you can be very um, frightened by what's happening politically. Some of you can be overwhelmed by what's going on with your children. The realities of raising children in this world or the realities of of the waywardness of your particular child's heart in in ways some of us can be fearful about work and how much longer we'll have work or some sort of power struggle that's taking place there and what's going to happen to me depending on who wins or loses that power struggle some of us can be panicking about retirement will i have anything Will it last? These are things that people can struggle with. And I think Peter invites us that even in these things as well, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for a particular reason. And that reason he gives is, for the sake of your prayers. We're to use the clarity of mind, the alertness, not to, you know... um, figure out our own way through this, but rather to call upon our Heavenly Father. So prayer is not about panic. Prayer is about trust. But prayer is also a confession of our powerlessness to change all of those circumstances. It's it's a confession that we need help from Him. But it's also an admission that we actually have a Heavenly Father who cares about these things. And so prayer is really the expression of a child to a dad to come and help him. Sometimes we forget we're supposed to be like little children in certain ways. And one of those ways is our dependence. That we cry out to him when life seems overwhelming and difficult for us. So we find things in Scripture like Ephesians 6. In the context of spiritual warfare, Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end that keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so there he again, uh, sorry, rather he, uh, Paul also connects this alertness, this soberness with praying, making um, thoughtful prayers, not panicked prayers, for the other saints, not just oneself. We see as well Paul in a similar context in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. They're praying not just in good stuff, but also in difficult stuff. Giving thanks not for the circumstances themselves, but giving thanks in part that they have a Heavenly Father who cares for them in those circumstances. And so we call upon Christ because we know He's sufficient, but we also call upon our Heavenly Father because He has shown His love for us and taken us into His household, and therefore we have the rights of a child, the rights of a son. So Jesus' rule and reign can calm our hearts and minds so that we can pray through difficulty. Secondly, Loved, earnestly love, and express its fruit within God's household. See, remember, Jesus has brought us back to God. And you can never be brought back to God without also being brought back to God's people. We see that as unfolds in places like Leviticus 19, that there's always this reality that, that you, you have your relationship with God, but you also have this relationship with the rest of God's people, your neighbor whom you're supposed to love as yourself. So, we've brought, been brought back to God. We've also been brought back to the household of God, the family of God, whichever words you want to use. And therefore, this household, because it's God's household, is intended to be one that is filled with love. Because God himself is love. And so Peter says, above all, that's an important little phrase there, means, hey, really important, keep loving one another Earnestly. Now, part of that implies that they're already loving each other. And I think they were. So it wasn't an added burden that he is placing upon them, but he's saying continue in what you already are doing. And because we have been united to Jesus, okay, His love is poured into our hearts, and we are then able to love other people. And so we see not only Christ's work for us, but now we also see a glimpse of Christ's work in us to make us loving people because we're united to Him. That's where Peter's going with this. So he wants them to grow in love. And this word that is uh, translated earnestly, not quite the best, has an idea of being stretched. He wants them to be stretched in love so that love covers a greater uh, amount of ground in their in the community life, so to speak. This is the reality that love is often tested within the context of community. In other words, don't sell for friendliness. Friendliness is nice. When I moved to the South, everybody was friendly. 
I thought they were my friends. I was wrong. They were just culturally friendly. And this Yankee, it took him a, a little while to figure that out, but I finally figured it out, you know, and it hurt. The, the trials of, of community will separate friendliness from love. Because there are going to be some people who stick with you through the trials, and there will be some people who don't. They're the friendly people, as opposed to the people who love you and care for you. And so... Let's think again how how I think Paul uh, Peter here is thinking. If he's thinking in light of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, one of the things that Jesus said there in the Olivet Discourse was, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So here's a bit of a warning. Don't let your love grow cold, but let it continue to be stretched. Let it continue to be fervent, warm, embracing. Paul does a similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, in the last days which we are still in, he says that love will be distorted. People will still love, but he says, Instead of loving God and loving others and loving holiness, they're going to love self, love money, love pleasure. And so this love that grows cold is really just a disordered version of love that is set on the wrong things. I, when I was picking up Amy and the kids, uh, I went to see my doctor. And I don't know how this this happens to me, but somehow he and I got in a conversation and we talked a lot about the love of money being the root of all evil. <laughs> Here we go, once again, so to speak. That's what people are going to love in the last days, love now, instead of loving people the bottom line becomes more important than the needs of another person. We're going to get to that a little bit more in a moment. One key manifestation that he mentions of, of, of loving each other earnestly is that love covers a multitude of sins. You see, sins stretch love. Stretches it in families. Stretches it in churches. Are you going to continue to extend love to another person even though they may have just harmed you? May have just spoken ill about you or done something that uh, negatively affects you? Are you going to love when they sin? And we have to be reminded that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so God shows His love in part by removing our guilt and condemnation. And so we also show love towards one another by extending a similar forgiveness to them. 
Part of what Peter is referring to here is Proverbs 10, verse 12, that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sin. And it's the lack of love. If you're loving the wrong things, if you're loving your money, if you're loving your pleasure, if you're loving yourself, then when someone sins against you, it's going to, well, you're not going to forgive them. You're going to enter into strife and discord. You're going to fight about it. You're going to make a federal case about it. You see, the lack of love stirs up and perpetuates conflict. When you don't have a love for the other person, it can be as if they can do no right. And all that they do is wrong. Want a good example of this? Tom Brady. If you were a New Englander, for those of you who didn't catch that name, Patriot uh, quarterback. Okay. Um, if you live in New England, he can almost do no wrong. Okay. Yeah, he, he does some wrong things. Okay. But generally, people think everything he does is good and right. If you don't live in New England, especially if you live in places like Pittsburgh, <laughs> he does nothing right. I have friends who constantly complain about Tom Brady. Um, but that's just an example. When our heart is, is against someone, then, then even the best things they do, we, are, we see them in the most negative light possible and complain and judge them. But love extends grace, the grace of God to other peoples in order to minimize conflict, and I'll say this in a good way, because, of course, there are some sins that need to be addressed, not just covered over. Okay, But you can't make a federal case about every single thing. And so love is almost like the uh, fire sprinkler we have in the other building. That when conflict rears its ugly head like the flames of a fire, the water comes down to suppress the conflict. That's what love's supposed to do. Things are getting out of hand. Wait a minute, this is not loving one another. Let's slow this down. Let's extend forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Let's move past this instead of being, instead of biting and devouring one another. Because if we address every, every sin that comes up, man, everything's a drama and everyone gets weary. Been there, done that, hated that. If you leave a church, and people leave churches, don't leave because you're angry about a little thing. But work it out. The second manifestation of this love that that Peter mentions is show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this is really that why I think this is connected to that is because show hospitality in the Greek is not the verb. It's an adjective. It's meant to modify love. Part of what love does is shows hospitality without grumbling. It's in, in that context, in Peter's day, it was primarily welcoming traveling teachers. Because there weren't, you know, there was no Motel 6 down the road. Uh, and if there was, it usually had a very bad reputation. Uh, bad things happened there. Um, didn't want to send the, uh, the, the, 
traveling evangelist to the den of, iniqui- den of iniquity, did you? So you opened up your house to them. But there were also some people who opened their houses for the meetings of the people because, of course, they didn't have church buildings like we do today. And so hospitality also included that. And it was meant to be an expression of love. And we do this precisely because God has opened His household to us. We didn't deserve to be there. We didn't merit a place in His household. And yet He opened it up to us and brought us in through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we are intended to open our households to others who are also united to Christ. Which is why Paul says things like this in Galatians 6, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. But it's not just being generous, it's not just opening your house, but Peter qualifies it with this key, without grumbling. Without quiet resentment. It recognizes the reality that hospitality is costly. It takes time. It takes financial resources. The food that uh, you thought was going to be there for next week is suddenly not there because it was in the, it's now in the belly of someone else. It, It can be costly emotionally. There are many ways it can be costly. And so Peter wants them to be hospitable, but he doesn't want them to be under their breath complaining about it. Man, I can't believe I was saving that steak for next week. Or, man, they're going to stay another night. <laughs> Whatever it might be. But one that is open-hearted, generous, and thanks God for the opportunity to serve another person in their need. How can we do this? Because we go back to places like 2 Corinthians 9. Christ made Himself poor to enrich us. And so if we, if we recognize that, uh, if we recognize that, that He did that, we also then begin to impoverish ourselves to enrich others knowing from the context of 2 Corinthians 9 that He will continue to supply that which we need. We need not fear that His supply will suddenly dry up. And what Peter is getting at is that we are stewards of His grace, which includes these grace gifts or charisma that He gives us. We're going to oh so briefly discuss that. But stewards manage the property of others. For instance, Peter David says, the steward was the person in a household who was responsible for managing the householder's business and property, including providing what was needed for the family members, slaves, and hired workers. He, the, the steward ran the house. Not his house. Not his food. Not his money. It was all supplied by, supplied by the paterfamilias or the household owner. But he was the one who managed all of it. And for those of you who have a hard time conceiving of that, think of Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey. He ran the household. That's what a steward does. 
And so the things that you have, the things that are, that are in, within your possession, you're really simply a steward of. Whether they be material things or spiritual things. You're a steward. And just as you didn't deserve those gifts, gets back to this idea of grace gift, um, we can't demand that others deserve our service. Well, I'm only going to serve them if. No. Let's not put conditions upon that. And so love is expressed in forgiveness and service and therefore is a mark of God's household, the God who declares Himself to be love. Thirdly, depend on God's grace in giving grace to glorify God. Now there's a shift that takes place uh, from the call to serve out of love uh, that now he kind of goes into the way in which we serve and the motive for which we serve, the glory of God. Let's note that, there, that here he lists essentially two categories of, of gifts, uh, speaking gifts and doing gifts, and let, let's not uh, think that this is meant to be exhaustive in any sense, but he does list these two things. But the purpose is to serve one another. The purpose is not to make a great name for yourself, but really to meet the needs of other people. And so this is a sense is, not Christ's work for us, not Christ's work in us, but Christ's work through us. He's utilizing us to meet the, the needs of other people. Okay? We are to serve other people. And so, in terms of speaking gifts, he says, as one who speaks, and I really don't like the translation, oracles of God, but simply the words of God. Because I don't want us to think that suddenly we're prophets like in the Old Testament. Because they made oracles of God, right? Okay. If uh, Lucette is reminding me of Scripture, she is not an oracle of God. But she is, of course, speaking to me words of God. In other words, we speak with a mind towards whom we represent God. We don't, we, you and I do not have apostolic authority, but we are messengers who are under the authority of Scripture and speak the words of Scripture and the principles of Scripture to one another. Okay? That's a little different than an oracle of God. Secondly, with the doing that the one who serves, serves by the strength that God supplies. We are intended to serve in His strength. And this idea of supplying is really interesting because it has the idea of the patron. And in this case, it was the patron of a chorus. Really odd how that word kind of started with the idea of, of uh, someone who paid for uh, a, a chorus to exist. You know, paid the salaries of everybody, paid their bills, so they could sing and uh, from wherever. And Paul, uh, P- yeah, Peter kind of borrows this word from that. It's a provider. And we know that the patron of all of this is not us. The patron is the Father. Just as a father um, often is the patron for the hobbies of their children, 
until they get to be adults, but sometimes that still happens. Um, Our Heavenly Father is the patron of our service to other people. He supplies the resources and he also supplies the strength that is necessary. The supply comes through our union with Jesus Christ. If we are not united with Christ, we don't have that supply and we are serving in our own strength. Think of it as the computer that is not plugged into the wall. It's working off its battery and there's a limited lifespan and then it's going to be able to do nothing. At some point it must be plugged into the wall to receive power. And the Spirit is us, uh, is like us being plugged into the power source. And the reason that we seek God's strength and, and all of this is that God may be glorified. In other words, this is all about God's glory. It's not about our glory as His stewards. How great I am, but we're always to be about how great He is. It's to Him that belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And so God is meant to be glorified through Jesus Christ, for instance, as we cover sins. He's to be glorified as we show hospitality. He's to be glorified as we speak the words of God to one another. He's to be glorified as we serve one another for their good. Because all this grace comes to us in Christ, and all the glory therefore is to God through So, if we believe in Jesus, we have been called out of the faithless place, the faithless community. We've been called into the household of God through the work of Jesus for our salvation. When we believe, we're adopted and we receive uh, many benefits. And one of those is that we have a Heavenly Father we call on in prayer to help us when life is hard and scary. We are loved extravagantly by this same Father so that we can love one another better over the course of time. That means we can forgive one another. We can serve one another with our gifts. And our Father helps us in this service as well. He and Jesus get all the glory as the giver of all good gifts to us. And so the the question I have for you, is this theoretical? Or is this something you experience now already and hope to experience in greater measure as you grow up in Jesus Christ? Don't settle for an intellectual sort of, yes, that's what should happen, yes. I want that. I want to know more of the love of the Father and to share that love with the people that He's placed me in community with. Let's pray. Father, this is an encouragement and challenge. That's the community I want to be in. We all, if we're in Christ, should have that thought. 
That sounds like a great place to hang out. A great place to be connected. But Father, the rub of it is, it's not just that we, what we receive, but what we offer freely. And so give us more of um, Christ's character. Who did not come to be served, but to serve. So continue to make us more like Jesus in, in these particular ways. Help us to grow in um, our capacity and willingness to love one another. Help us to grow in our capacity and willingness to serve one another without grumbling about it. Help us to grow in our trust so that when we do hit those big bumps in the road, we're, we're praying about it instead of panicking about it. So that, we, so that you get a whole lot of glory through people like us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.